Blessed are we among women like Caroline Casey. Caroline is the businesswoman and activist behind The Valuable 500, the world's largest CEO collective and business movement for disability inclusion. Caroline launched the movement at the World Economic Forum's Davos Summit in 2019 and since then has signed up 500 multinational organisations around the globe. Recently appointed President of the IAPB, Caroline also sits on several diversity and inclusion boards to include L'Oreal and Sky and is a much sought after speaker. Caroline has received an honorary doctorate as well as multiple awards and accolades for her work as a disability activist. Her honesty and vulnerability in this episode is touching and inspiring. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Growing Forward and we are continuing our Iconic Women series and let me tell you, Iconic doesn't even describe who I have with me today. So I'm joined by Caroline Casey, who could be described as a social entrepreneur. I see her as a a trailblazer, a firecracker, a troublemaker in the best kind of sense, and an absolute activator. Like everything that comes out of her mouth just shifts me, moves me, changes me. I first met Caroline at an event in, I was on the online version of the event, but we connected afterwards, the Irish Examiner. I think it might have been International Women's Day. And one of those people that just made me turn up the sound, zoom closer in, I was like, who is this person? And give me more, please. So you are very welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for adding Troublemaker (laughs) into my title because I actually do feel that's exactly what I am a troublemaker with a big heart for sure and also I just want to say I love the title of this growing forward because that's exactly how it feels like Mm -hmm. growing forward as you get older it's just like oh my gosh all these things that we learned if only I had known back then what I know now but I don't and, and I didn't so I'm hopefully getting better like wine with age I think Yes, but you know what? We're right on time. And that's why I think we're here to share what we know to those who are behind us or next to us or ahead of us who need to hear the things that will activate their growth too, you know? So tell me, I want to go backwards before we get right into it. Like this is literally like a walk through your head. Now today we're going to literally be like mining <laughs> what's in there. And also I forgot to mention in that introduction, like a National Geographic documentary as well. Oh, just like, you know, in the mix of things of all that you're doing, right? Go back to younger Caroline when, you know, you're obviously this rounded woman who has worked on herself and made a change in the world. But like, when you were younger, when all that conditioning really begins, I want to like let let us get into where were you, what were you around, what were you influenced by, like who are you looking up to? So bring us back to like seven or eight year old or nine year old Caroline. Wow. I first of all, I feel like I've just stepped into a therapy a therapy <laughs> session, but in a good way. Um, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a massive uh, I massively support therapy and it's been a huge part of my growing forward, actually. Um, and that's probably related to where I was. And it's so lovely to be asked this question and not starting about the usual part of my story, which is about my sight. Um, so where I was at six and seven, um, I'm the eldest of three. Uh, I was born in 1971. Um, I, it's very hard for people to accept, but actually I'm quite shy. 
And uh, you could honestly, people would not, uh, they would not accept that, um, that I'm shy. I am. But I learned how to offset my shyness. I learned strategies so that people might not see that I was quite scared. Um, I hid the fact that I really hadn't, I really had no sense of myself actually when I was six and seven, though it might have appeared differently um, because I was always having a knot in my stomach um, and feeling quite unsure um, in one part of myself. Okay. So that was the, the, I can remember her so well. Um, And I think about her now, my voice is shaking because my God, I just want to put my arms around little Caroline and go, Look what's coming, Caroline. It's like, okay, you know, honey. It's okay, know. you know. And um, I, we, you know, I come from a, a family that really had to. It really had its. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, okay. My whole life was not easy. A lot of people imagine that it was because I've had a story about my my sight, mm-hmm. which has become the story of me, which is not my story. It's only part of my story. But I had a very quite a, a, a difficult childhood in that respect. But then on the other side of me, which is everything about me, because I'm always duality, I seem to be the intersection of two things. So on the other side was this child who was, you know, bursting for freedom, wanting to run in a desert with her hair wild behind her. I loved color. And I remember obsessed with color, right? So that I, when, you know, the tooth fairy came, I had no interest in you know, the tooth fairy money. So I remember I wrote a letter to the tooth fairy saying, well, look, instead of giving me money for my teeth, could you just give me a box of pencils with all the colors in the world? Oh. So I, you know, it's so weird. I've been thinking back about that. I was two sides of a very shy child, very insecure, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, this, I wanted to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book because I had seen the Jungle Book at six and a half. My dad had taught me how to sail and not having a clue how to do it. And I imagined deserts and horses and I wanted to be all those freedom things. And these two parts of my personality actually track all the way through my life. And at different times, one comes out maybe more than the other. And so I think that might best that's, that's say incredible. who I am. Yeah. Because actually, I think I relate to that as a as an adult. Now, well, I, I call myself an adult, but it's questionable. <laughs> but I do believe that like there's a younger side only now that I know and I've gone back and gone through that child, you know, the inner child work and helped other women do the same. But there's such duality, but we never learned that we need to bring both of those parts with us. So I nearly had to I got to an age where I was in my early 40s. I nearly had to go back and pick up all the pieces and decide which ones are coming forward with me. But the color piece, like talk about dreaming in color. Mine was the same. It was like fashion wheels and like it was like, you know, multicolor threw up everywhere that I was. But then there was this other side that was terrified, looking to be safe, looking to be long, looking to be exactly. accepted. But they're the parts that I protected more as I was going through my earlier career. I thought I should stay in my box and stay safe. And now I've just gone back and realized. It, oh, it's all that colourful piece that I want to now share with yeah. the world, you know. And that's where there's a commonality with us, I think, in that I'm drawn to you like a magnet, your style, your fashion. And I honestly, I forget the challenges that you you live with 
And now that that I suppose the pain becomes your power. And in you, I see that I didn't actually mention it in, in the introduction, and that know, wasn't even intentional. I loved I it. Just I love that you didn't. It's so great. You la- no. you allowed me in your introduction come in as Caroline and and so much of the things that I do have attached to the work I do today or the fact that I was the elephant girl like 20 something years ago in Ireland and you know that that I have this extraordinary story of coming to terms with disability everybody mm-hmm. always starts talking to me with that About and that. I'm like oh but I'm not I'm that's yeah. just part of me you know and 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 that whole part of <clears throat> when you think about growing forward and one really clear message for everybody and everything is just be careful not to get trapped into your own stories, to be defined by a role or a thing that you were or a pain or a tragedy or a glory is that we really can find ourselves getting trapped into those defined by. So, yeah, thank you for just allowing me to turn up as Caroline today, the, the woman who dreams in colour, actually. yes, yeah, I And I feel I just see a kaleidoscope of who you are. And of course, the obvious thing that I suppose people maybe know you for. Tell us about that. So like, I think the two sides of the dark and the light here are I see you as a visionary, but not necessarily with your sight, because I think you have a much bigger organ than your eyes. Your organ is your heart. And there's a reason why our mouth is halfway between our heads and our eyes and our heart, because we need to engage both sides of of our bodies. And I think we forget to do that. Lots of people do. Your loudest organ to me is your heart. And that's what I think it just falls out of your mouth. But tell us about your sight. Let's just give a little moment so we can understand deeper, you know, the challenges you've had with your sight. So there's a great um, faithless song. You don't need eyes to see. You just need vision. And just to your point about that. um, I'm getting tears in my eyes as you say. Yeah, actually, this is good. This is, I really wish we were doing a podcast because I'd be like, can we just keep talking? Um, um, I, so in some ways, my sight uh, or lack of it um, was the vision that I've set my professional life on for so long. So Mm -hmm. I have a condition called ocular albinism. And and if people were looking at me, they would see um, a 51 year old woman with very, very white skin and white blonde hair that's not dyed. Um, So that is albinism. So if you hear about people who are albino Mm -hmm. and I live with albinism and it's ocular albinism, meaning it, you know, it's very much affected in my eyes. Um, At six months, I was diagnosed with that. And what that means is I have about one and a half feet vision. So if you put the blur on your Zoom screen, that is what I see after about one and a half feet. Now, when I was born, um, apparently I blinked a lot and my grandparents were like, gosh, she's such an attentive child. She's so intelligent. (laughs) You know, I was very light sensitive. But then skipping forward um, when mom and dad were deciding where to send me to school, they both really clearly, but quite led by my father, didn't want me to be defined by a lack of something or did not want Mm -hmm. me to be defined by a limitation, which in this case was my vision. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to a mainstream school. They never told me that I had a eye condition that was significantly more than wearing glasses because I also wear glasses. And I just went to school thinking I was like any other child with glasses, which is corrective vision. So when you've got glasses, you've got pretty much normal vision. And uh, yeah, went through all of my school, 
That's so incredible. It it, it, it is, but it's not as bizarre as people think because there's Mm -hmm. lots of children who aren't diagnosed with dyslexia or dyspraxia or 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 ADHD or autism or vision impairment, by the way. Um, And then it was 17 years old. I discovered um, I was doing my leaving search Mm -hmm. and uh, I discovered um, on my birthday um, because my father and mother gave me a driving lesson for my my 17th birthday not that I could have afforded to drive that was not the issue it's this that they knew I always wanted to race cars and motorbikes and I'll be honest I'm not really sure they knew how serious my sight was because Mm. um they weren't being cruel you know but that's when I discovered it and it is a weird serendipity that we myself and my sister who also has the same condition Mm -hmm. uh, were seeing an eye specialist that day and I thought I was seeing the eye specialist just to keep my sister company. And it was him oh who told God. me. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's it is a lot. A, it's a strange story. Yeah, it is. But like, I suppose then where did like, where did you go from there? And like, you're lit up by the work you're doing. And that flame is seen by everybody. It's lighting other people up along the way. But how did you get to figuring out that this was your purpose and that there was a bigger issue that you could actually you could bring voice to and you could speak the truth about, you know, what happened between, say, that age then and to where you are in your career now? What are the steps in between? Well, the the first and most important thing to know is that when I discovered I had a disability, I did not understand it. Mm-hmm. I, I was 17 years old and I was like, what? If I've got this far, I can, I don't need to talk about my disability. So mm-hmm. I went into the disability closet. Okay. And I think to answer the question is, I feel like I've been atoning for that forever. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly in the first, you know, 15 years of the, of the work I've done. Um, because did you have not- to kind of over, like, did you have to over, what's the word? Like, did you feel you were over delivering from that point onwards then? I had to, because eternity. if you go into the, yeah, if you go into the disability closet, that meant I was leaving school and I was going into university. And I, I mean, like, I was in a total new world, like any young person going from mm. university, from school to university. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I really don't see. And um, I hid it. So I used humor. I deflected. I became loud if I needed to. I just did everything that I became. I probably am a type personality, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But I definitely became an overachiever. Everything was done despite my eyes. And I stayed that way for 11 years through university. I did archaeology, not ideal for somebody who was visually impaired. Then I traveled around the world. I was a masseuse. I was a landscape gardener, horticulture. Every single time I was coming up against vision problems because it, it was significant. And then I went back to do my business um, degree and the master's. And I ended up in one of the biggest consultancy companies in the world, Accenture. I never told them. And that about my vision impairment. And I went in and I worked with them and it was two and a half years working with them as a, like, and I was achieving, I was an achieving consultant. It's not that I was not, Mm -hmm. but it was exhausting. And the quote that I can give that would best explain how I felt is Maya Angelou's quote. There's no greater agony than an untold story inside you. And every time I say that quote, I shake I quiver, because, yeah. because that is the basis of my work. Yes, it's led through disability for sure, mm-hmm. but it, it is the idea 
the pain when you're trying to be something you're not, that you're not being true to yourself. It's an easy thing to say that you're enough on Instagram, but that is not true. And it's so hard. And so and when the space I, it takes up, I think, oh, in you, like in your head, in your it's a physical oh, space that's literally it's like a void in there that is packed in with things. And some people yeah. do realize they're carrying this weight and others actually don't even realize that that's they've just got so good at functioning, carrying this load. Yeah, that they keep you do. Using. You function in it. You're, you're dysfunctionally functioning, I think, that's about the only yeah. way I know how to do it. But then underneath all of that. Right. So I'm I'm hiding the fact that I have a disability. And I'm also hiding the fact that actually that family, that beginning family trauma stuff, mm. I I had really no sense of who I was. I didn't think I was lovable. I didn't think I was worth very much. But mm. from the outside, I might have looked at it, but I didn't. And so I kind of, it all came to a bit of a crash um, at the end of 1999. I was 28 years old. And I went into HR um, in um, Accenture. And the funny side is I said, I can't see you right now. And she says, we'll reschedule. (laughs) And I was like, no, I actually can't see you right now. I literally. (laughs) Yeah, I literally can't. And that is what was was one of those defining moments that was to set the the course of my life in a different Mm. way. But what I can tell you now, looking back, it wasn't just my sight. It was a very complex strategy that I had been using because actually I felt I was worth 99p. Yeah. And that unfortunately or fortunately then drove me probably very hard into the next, you know, few years of my life where I was like, well, I, I want to be part of fixing the global disability crisis because, you know, this needs to be done. And it's horrific to see the exclusion and marginalization of human beings, despite the fact disability is going to touch so many of us. But the way I did it and the way I drove myself so uncompromisingly was because actually I hadn't done my proper work and I thought I was worthless. Ah, And I think like, true. God, that like, it's so empowering to hear that from you because I, I I see it like a valley, right? There's people who are like, when we're being our full authentic selves, we're over here on the valley. But then we go into careers and we find we're way over here on the other extreme and we get so caught up in this image of who we should be that we yeah. kind of should our pants. We're like, I should do this because I'm in this company and I should have this yeah. car and I should live in this area. And the gap becomes vast. Yeah. So like, I think lots of us are waking up. I certainly have. I had a much smaller incident happen to me, just like a physical accident that made me go, what the hell am I doing all the ways over here? I need yeah. to come back home to myself. But the problem was I was avoiding all that stuff on the inside. Nowhere near, I'm sure, like what you're having to had, have had worked through since. But it does it's all relative to the person. We have this well of pain that we just are avoiding. And I think like if we can just get down a layer deeper and get to the pain that's in there and accept it, first of all, because I couldn't accept it. I was like, well, this isn't the perfect version of who I want to be. There's another person in there and it's your higher self, your better self, which is just kind of buried under all of this stuff. And if we just allow her out for a minute, it's like I always describe it as it's like a door. 
and we're keeping the door shut, right? And there's this beautiful light inside the door that's begging to be just let out. But we spend our whole lives pushing the door closed going, no, it's grand. I have this. It's fine. And if we just let the door go and let all of the light shine out, if it's too strong for people, they can look away. You know, they can just look away. But I know, see, I, I didn't know any of this about you, in fact, but I know, see, that you're showing us how to not just knock down the door, but to knock down the wall that's even holding the door, you know. Well, I I think it's, um, I don't really, you know, I'm never given the chance to speak about this part because everybody is looking at the fact that I'm a disability activist and having built the work that I do and all of that. And don't get me wrong, it is, I am, I am so passionate about it. But my passion for it has, has changed. The reasons why I do it now are much more authentic. They're much more real. Mm. Whereas I think in the beginning phase, when I did it, when I went across India on an elephant and that began because Pat Kenny saw me in the late, you know, I was on the late, late show and Dermot Desmond invested in me and there was lots of things and I became the elephant girl and I got caught up in trying to change everything for everyone else. Yes. Not really looking about who, what am I? Okay. So the parts that are so authentic in me, don't get me wrong. Mm. I am the adventure chick. Of course, I was going to be an elephant handler. Of course, I was <laughs> going to be Mowgli. I'm the daughter of an entrepreneur. I am entrepreneurial. I can't change that in myself. Yes. I am a person who loves to ignite change. I, I love that. And I do lead with my heart, this huge mm. heart of mine. Um, but I think for so long, my heart was so broken and it didn't understand that. I didn't really understand who I was because another quote is Rumi's quote. You know, they say a, a clever man changes the world and a wise man changes himself or herself. Yeah, yes. you know, yeah. oh, that really hurts. I know. It's, so true. it's true. And I feel that like I see it as like, a hardening and a softening. I see that life really hardened me and in, in small ways, like nothing absolutely, you know, catastrophic happened, but all of this hardening, hardening, being masculine and being like, get it done and do the next thing and keep going. Don't take time off and don't rest. And, and then I'm like, actually, no, my, my divine gifts are when I allow my heart to open and I allow myself to be soft and I allow to say it as it is. And we just all need to soften a bit because our, our divine gifts are, are in there, tucked away in all that lovely, warm softening. But we become so conditioned to be the hard, you know, get it done. So I feel that we all just need to soften a bit. Now, physically, I'm softening all <laughs> in no, all the areas. Well, menopause, <laughs> a menopause forces softening, whether you like it or not. And, exactly. and you know, coming into that phase of my life um, and having been there very confused for a while. Um, but, the, you know, Brené Brown has a beautiful thing about, you know, strong back and soft heart. And, and Dolly Parton is one of my idols. I mean, I absolutely love Dolly Parton. Um, and for me, because I think she embodies a lot of that, she's steely strong and yet she's also quite gooey. But yeah. it's the combination that she's an exceptionally good business woman because she controlled her business and she's real heart there. Don't she's really heart, but she's very strong. Um, but I think the reason I admire Dolly is because she really knew who she was. Mm -hmm. And um, listening to you talking about the softening or understanding or divine gifts, you know, I would have heard this a few years ago. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Divine gifts. Listen, I just got to get on with it. Me too. But yeah. it's actually true. 
So anybody who's listening to this, um, you know, I remember doing a lot of therapy and they go, Caroline, why do you have to, you know, stretch your head out so much like a horse race? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like pleading with the world. <laughs> Lead from, uh, from a relaxed place. Let it go. Sometimes, you know, this whole idea of never giving up. Yeah, that's a great thing. But it is also the worst thing about me. Because sometimes you do need to walk away. Sometimes you do need to stop because if you don't pause, you're going to die, you know, Mm. literally. But I was not conditioned that way. I was conditioned not to ask for help. I was conditioned to be a superhero despite. And now it's like, uh, you know, and it's sometimes it's hard because if I'm emotional or I'm vulnerable or I'm honest, you can see or feel a room literally react and go, it's too much. And I'm going, well, yeah, but this is who me, this is me. Yeah. And yeah. the room that's saying it's too much means, well, there's something cutting off you. Yes. <laughs> so. And you know what? It's all about, like, I think the word again, now when you said I would have rolled my eyes, literally, my eyes were nearly backwards from rolling because I'm like, oh, this embodiment and confidence. And yeah. like, well, wow. it's actually the embodiment is now I understand it to be actually just surrender, come back into yourself. And just be all of that in there. And that's enough, you know. So like I have a very different take on it now than all of the like the quotes on Instagram. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Sure quote. I've quoted three quotes at you. So I, I mean, you know, I'm you know. a quoting queen. But yeah, I do. It's, 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 it's the it's, integration um, of the learning. I think it's, it's actually bringing it back into your heart and allowing yourself the freedom and permission to go. Yeah, I don't have to put my neck out there. I can be the Caroline that sits here, you know, and. Just say it as it is. And if it's too much for them, that isn't your problem. But it is hard. And I Mm -hmm. will say that it's I have found it hard, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm a recovering people pleaser. Right. So Mm -hmm. recovering people pleasers. I'm the child of an alcoholic, a recovered alcoholic. And my mom is absolutely amazing. But so I am a quite an archetypal fixer. That's just the Mm -hmm. nature of me. Um, But it is hard. It takes practice. It doesn't come easily. And I think this thing that you talk about integration, we can go through years of therapy and go through the process of it, but it doesn't integrate. And the integration is when you realize it's there, it never ends. The growth of self-acceptance never ends. And it is hard to change. And you just have to become more and more aware that that's the thing. It's like, I catch myself now when I don't make a big decision fast because I don't want to hurt people, right? So when you're running a business, you've got lots of lives around you. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to hurt them, you know, but actually by not being clear, um, by not going in a, um, acting decisively can actually be far more painful than Mm -hmm. for an individual. So it just takes practice. Well, it certainly takes practice me and I screw up all the time and I'm always beating myself up going, I should have done this, you know, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Yes. Um, but you know, once again, Maya Angelou, um, you know, you do the very best with what you have at the time. And can I tell you, you gotta live that. You gotta, you just gotta let go of the crappy bits that we didn't do so well and stop making them your story because you'll never move beyond it. So yeah, it is hard. I think it's like that hardness. So I suppose it's different for everybody. For me, I describe it as when I when I feel the sniff of that discomfort, I, I, I've now learned that I need to hold the discomfort, which is the impossible. Yes. Like we get to 90 percent and then we <laughs> run back in and retract. I'm like, no, hold it there. 
understand it, oh, yeah. accept it, and try to melt it away then. And I, that that is where I am oh, at now. Gosh. I'm like, the discomfort, come into me, come into my heart, and I'll give you a hug, and the rest will fade away, you know? But it's just to train our bodies actually more than my head. My logic will step in, but now I go, no, I have a whole body to work with here. So I try to go, that that unease in my tummy, I'm going to hold it and it'll go. And that's where I find, no, it's taken me, like it's a long journey. <laughs> I'm 44 what? years trying to get to this. Oh, it's the discomfort I need to deal with. <laughs> well, I, uh, what I would say is I'm going through one of those just at the moment. The last three or four days, I've been feeling very uneasy inside myself as if, you know, I just, I feel so sad. Like I, mm. and I don't know why. I honestly don't know. I mean, Grief when you lose people that you love. Grief pops up every now and again. And mm-hmm. but I that's so I am a fixer. Yeah. So I run. I run to fix things rather than sit in the discomfortable or uncomfortable yeah. place of oh, I feel really yucky. And I really do feel yucky at the moment. Yeah. And I'm finding it really hard. And I'm very public at the moment. I'm speaking a lot and I'm doing a lot, but I am not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to think it. I'm not trying to logicalize it. I'm not trying Mm. to distract, which is a great way for me to do when I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I, well, I will go do that. I will run a marathon. I will do this, (laughs) you know. No. And I can say, I am not feeling really very good at the moment. And I don't know why, but that's okay. And I'm going to sit with it. And as you say, I hope it will melt away if I don't hold it close and I don't try to fight it, mm. it will gently melt. And I know that from experience. So yeah. I am doing and it exactly before, the same. Before it melts, it will teach you something. But I'm laughing yes. because you, you call it the fixer. I used to kind of, my analogy was I'm the mopper upper. So like oh. I mop up people's discomfort, other people's discomfort. Yeah. I'm like, you know, you relax. If there's nobody talking in the conversation, oh, I'll, I'll mop that up. And now I'm like, no, I, I actually am so proud when I sit there going, Oh, oh me t- too. Tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. And anybody listening to us is going, those two wouldn't keep wouldn't keep quiet. Oh, I practice it because yeah. I use sound to to take away the silence because silence always meant there was something wrong. Oh. Or I was in trouble or somebody else was unhappy. And so I would try oh, that's so interesting. To fix that so your other senses using... kind of kicked in to make sure that you were still people pleasing, basically. Yeah, totally. Mm. And I think oh. it's my husband who has taught me actually in silence, we do the best communication. So we do this thing. This is our second marriage. Both of us were married before. Okay. And um, we do this thing called it's to Sinead O'Connor's song. Thank you for hearing me. Seriously, this is just one thing we do. And the song is just under eight minutes. And we put the song on and we in silence look at each other. Oh, that's it. That's discomfort. It's so discomfort. (laughs) And the song is all about, thank you for hearing me. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for holding me. Thank you for breaking my heart. And it's a beautiful song. And so he and I, when we can get lost, uh, we'll go, will we do thank you? Uh, And it's so uncomfortable. It's beautiful. My God. But the silence. Now, obviously, she's singing in the background. But And if you do it without music, try it. Try it with anybody for 10 minutes and and look and don't do anything. No explanation. Mm. See how you turn up. And it's what we all want to be seen and to be heard. Isn't that it? Even in, in leadership. Like I had no 
plan to go down this route with you, but I, I, I knew once we got together that it would just be like, boom. But I really want to talk to you about the work that you're doing and the change <laughs> you're making in the world, genuinely, you know, so I want to give that some time. But I just also want to say, I just see you, I hear you. And the beautiful soul that's in there is just not to mention the style. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm like, how is she so stylish? It's incredible. But tell me about the work, because I know that you're here to change and to be that. When I said troublemaker, I mean it in the disruption. Oh, no, I know what you betterment, mean. The betterment. Oh, no, no, of I trouble, totally. You know, no, so I'm like, very proud that you call me that and that I didn't ask <laughs> you to call me it because I generally have to ask people to. So look, essentially, my work is um, I'm now the founder of The Valuable 500. I've been a disability activist um, for now 23 years, believe it or not, since they came off the elephant. Um, I believe the scale of the disability crisis that exists in the world is unacceptable. And we are not going to be able to end it unless business, which is the most powerful force on the planet, is meaningfully and intentionally part of the solution. So I believe inclusive business can create an inclusive society. I believe the only way that you're going to create inclusive business is if you have inclusive leaders at the top being accountable and responsible and stop delegating it down to HR or to somebody else, you know, and I also believe in the power of collective action. So I believe it doesn't matter if you have one brilliant company or one brilliant leader, it's never going to change it. So that has been my work for a long time. And for those who might have known the Ability Awards I ran it, which was a huge program, very successful in Ireland. That was on those principles, all the mm -hmm. same. And to be fair, I mean, we'd won a lot of awards and it's been brilliant and the work has been done. But by the end of 2016, I still was unhappy. Actually, no, I was furious um, that disability was in the sidelines of business. And it was still, it was at least on the business agenda, which it hadn't been in 2000, but it wasn't a priority area of focus. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, no, you know what? That's an inclusion delusion. Inclusion is either all for everyone or not at all. And you can't have hierarchies of inclusion and you can't have pick and mix inclusion or a la carte mm -hmm. inclusion. That is just, that's bullshit. And I'm, I, I wanted to call out companies, but not shame them. I wanted them to see what they were doing by not having disability um, as part of their inclusion agendas and their strategies. And so I had what this they were missing dream. out on. Uh, well, I also, I had that, this dream for years. Like, even when I do this dream, I, and it was a dream, I physically had seen, not physically, I had, well, I had, I'd phys every time I would see a horse, I would get this really weird feeling. And I had these dreams of launching the biggest global campaign to get the most powerful business leaders in the world to be responsible and put disability on the leadership business agenda. And I knew there was something to do with the horse involved. Like, don't ask me. Like, it's it's pure magic. Yeah. And um, but I was 45 at the end of 2016 and I was starting to think, well, who am I? And there's somebody better looking and younger and smarter than me. And. And really all of that changed when my father unexpectedly passed away um, and he burnt out big. He was six foot six. He had size 15 feet. He was a huge man. He was a total black sheep and an entrepreneur. And actually it was his death. And it was the grief 
of his death that charged me forward to create what is now the Valuable 500. And the Valuable 500 was built in two years and two months. It was launched on the most important business stage in the world, which is the World Economic Forum in Davos. Everybody was rolling their eyes behind the wild Irish girl's head thinking, ah, bless, bless her. Who does she think she is? Thinking she's going to get 500 companies and 500 CEOs to take responsibility for disability because it had never been done with any issue, believe it or not. And we are now the second biggest global partnership in the world after UN Global Compact, which is 14,000 companies. And we represent 22 million employees globally, 46 headquartered countries, 64 sectors. You know, we're worth 23 trillion in market cap. And our job now with the 500 signatures and intentionality of our CEOs is to get our companies to work together against really big system barriers in the business system and deal with it. Stop making excuses and actually deal with it. But what makes us so powerful, like nothing in the world, if you get 500 companies doing the same thing at the same time, in the same way, then you have a chance because it's synchronized and it's harmonized and it's focused. Whereas having five, exactly, 500 companies doing 500 individual journeys is brilliant. Don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. And continue doing that. But when we ask you to help us make sure we have disabled talent in the, as leaders of business in the future, or we ask you to make sure you're reporting on disability performance in your annual reports, or we're asking you to increase representation of disabled people in and out of your business and in your communications, we could change that. It is possible if you give a deadline. And you work together fast. Wow. Like, I'm still stuck on the wild horse because I don't think you realize the companies aren't the wild, the horse that's running. It is you. That is the analogy of you, your fierceness, your power, your leadership and the gallop that you have. I mean, it's incredible. It's like your life's work has come from the pain that you've carried. And now all of those things have melted away. And now you're putting it into action so the world can keep up with that gallop. It's just the most beautiful thing. I just can't. Well, I think I would say is, yeah, I'd love the idea that I would be a horse. Actually, I'm wearing a horse around my neck given to me by one of my dearest friends. And it's a symbol for me of change. But if you've ever watched wild Brumby horses race across deserts and you hear the thud of the hoof, And you see them in movement like starlings in the sky, the murmuration. Mm. And that is everything I believe in, that if we work together, we might have our individual ways of doing it. We Our flight path, we have our own wingspan, our own hoof span. But if we work in the same way. But the piece that I would say that I am the most proud of in all of this is who I am and who I am evolving into, because the more I have learned to accept my good, bad and ugly, I am leading better. I'm not leading from fear or trying to prove. I'm mm. leading in a way that is much more intelligent. And I think that makes room for more. It allows me to be very clear and accountable to myself. Um, 
for where I'm failing and and not take that failure personally, but to use it as a sort of information to do better. Um, so I think I'm, um, I hope, I hope I'm a better leader because I'm a much more freer horse. I have the shivers. I actually, yeah, I can't even, like, I wish you could see what we can see, you know, and I don't mean that in sight, but like, instead of telling people what they should be doing, you're showing them. And that's powerful because there's permission in all of that. There's permission in people to other people to be a trailblazer or a troublemaker. There's permission in leadership for them to go, okay, I don't have to do it this structured way. There's another way and it can be more agile and open and free. You're bringing the freedom to them, but keeping the structure for them to make a change, you know? Exactly. And that's a really beautiful duality that you're now sharing with these companies. And what's next? Like where... (laughs) Well, the companies are made of people. So this is the thing. I don't understand why we're always asked to make the business case for anything like disability in business because we're companies and companies should reflect the worlds they are working in. But what's next for me? Well, wow, it's I this is a very uncomfortable uh, question for me at the moment um, because I'm the founder of the Valuable 500 and we have 22 employees and the big thing for me right now is to undefine myself. Okay. And the process of undefining yourself so that you might, because I'm only 51, I mm-hmm. think I've got some great stuff ahead of me. I just scared. I don't know what it is. But as we talked about earlier, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And I'm not going to fix it right now. And don't get me wrong, I do have dreams. I have dreams of having a fashion brand. I have dreams of running a hotel where people who may not be with a family or in partnership can feel safe and free and excited. I have ideas for journeys and adventures. I'm going to be um, a step granny um, very soon, which I am so excited about. I want to spend more time not running, you know, and oh. so I don't know what it means. And I look, I look at you and I think, oh, my gosh, look at you. And I, I have been promising to write a book, oh. but I failed so many times because work got in the way and I was trying to do things. So I'm scared, like, who would want to listen? Oh, my God. Will I do it? Will I not? And yet there's a part of me that feels. I have something so exciting to do. But it might not ever be to the magnitude of the valuable mm. 500 again, but it may have more impact because it might be different and it might be more individual. I don't know, but uh, my yeah, advice, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually buzzing for you. I'm like, oh, my God. My advice to you is there is more in you and there's more that the world needs of you. And what we need to do is just make space. You've shared a little flicker of the kaleidoscope of Caroline and the world is sitting here waiting with our credit cards ready, by the way. (laughs) I'm like, please start the clothing. (laughs) There's so much more, but you have to make space and just now sit with the discomfort because we all put this like, oh, I need to know the next step because the world has seen this fabulous thing and now they need to see the next higher up. No, no. You need to soften back into yourself another, there's another layer of gold in there. 
And I just cannot wait till you unleash it with the world because you've made your mark. You've done the thing. You've made the change and it'll continue to be, be made. But now it's, you get to actually let your soul has only had a little sentence in the world. It now has a whole paragraph to tell us. So I can't wait till that soul sings and actually comes to its full fruition because we're sitting here waiting for it. I cannot thank you enough for your honesty, your vulnerability, all of it, and hurry the hell up with all the rest of it because we're ready and we're waiting. <laughs> well, I thank you very much. And I, I, one of the things I am learning is that every single one of our stories is important. And so a person who may not be on the podcast or, you know, one of your guests, mm. one of the things we all really need to understand is that we each have an incredible story as long as we're in control of it. Uh, and that's something I want for everyone. So whether that's through fashion or a book or I don't know, a hotel, yes. God knows, it could be all the, uh, it could all be all the opposite things. things. All um, the things. I promise I will keep you, uh, keep in touch because God knows what's going to happen. Oh, well, this is it. It's, it's divinely coming through you. So we'll wait and watch, but that's the most beautiful way to end this episode. You get to write the story and only you are holding the pen, but let the ink, like the magic that's going to come out of that. It's been an absolute honor to have you here. I can't wait to see what happens next. And in the meantime, enjoy the softening, enjoy making space and enjoy your own soul coming to the surface for more. Thank you so much.